go. <laughs> um, but I, I want to talk about uh, Gethsemane in, in, in terms of our lives. And I, I think, I really feel like the word I was wrestling with this morning is that the, we, we started in the Garden of Eden. Humanity, you and I, our origin story is in the Garden of Eden, but we look forward to the Garden of the New Earth, but we live our entire ministry journey and lives in and out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is where we confront a divergence between our will and the will of God for our lives. We count the cost of the will of God. We surrender to the will of God. And somehow afterward, we discover this thing called spiritual authority within the will of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit about all those things, but I really just have one thing to say. Everyone wants a calling, but nobody wants a cup. You guys might notice the air conditioner is turned on this morning. <laughs> yeah, so good. And uh, we didn't really know what to do with it, so we so we like just cranked it down like we normally do this morning before you guys came in. And then by the time it got to ten o'clock, it was like sixty-three in here. Uh, so then we had to turn it up a little bit. We were like we overcorrected. We didn't know how this worked, and we have working air conditioning. Um, but the, the, the air conditioning did not come with its, without its own set of problems, without its own set of challenges, uh, particularly with our relationship with the mall, slightly. <laughs> um, last Thursday, we were working on this on the, on the roof, and um, I had a crane. We had to get a crane to come here to take the compressor, which is like almost 500 pounds, out of this air conditioner, take it to the ground, get the new compressor, put it up, and then we could install it or whatever. And I had the crane scheduled for Friday morning last week. And uh, uh, the, the air conditioning guys got, were ready for it by Thursday afternoon. They said, hey, just give him a call. See if maybe he's available. It's a long shot, but give him a call. I call him Thursday afternoon about 1 o'clock. I said, hey, we're actually ready for you. What if you just came at, at like, are you available this afternoon? He said, I'm available at 3 o'clock. I can come. I said, well, it's a miracle. Let's just do this now. Let's get it done. We're going to be done, like Thursday afternoon. We were going to have air conditioning last Sunday. It was going to be done. Good to go. And so he comes. The AC guys are there. I'm there Thursday afternoon, 3 o'clock. Get the crane all set up. Get everything latched on. And then the, the mall management, mall maintenance, mall security, like everybody involved with the mall in some way, comes running really out to the parking lot, like screaming at us. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And the, the manager of the mall uh, uh, kind of told us, like, we, there's a rule. There's a rule that you can't do any kind of crane work during uh, operating hours when there's pedestrians. They've got a rule that you can't do that. You've got to do it before 8 in the morning or after 9 p.m. You can't do any kind of crane work with the mall. And that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing just happens to pop off the crane, and it could fall through three floors could hit a person. It's a liability issue. Totally. I get it. The problem is we didn't know the rule. Nobody told us the rule. It's not in the contracts anywhere. It's not in the lease. Nobody, there's no orientation process. We didn't know the rule. So I'm just trying to say, we didn't know the rule. I'm so sorry. And they're trying to say, you knew the rule, and you people just try to get away with whatever you can or whatever. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we updated our insurance. We did, like, we, uh, every rule that I know about, we're trying to comply totally. And they're just, like, furious at us, at me, <laughs> Because they think we were just trying to pull a fast one on them. Just get the crane over here and just do it real quick and then leave the crane and they'll never know. And it's not what we were trying to do. I, still, I had it scheduled Friday morning. That's not what we were trying to do. And they're, and they're like really, really angry. I got like a verbal lashing all Thursday afternoon. And the crane guy, 
I'm like, can you come back tomorrow morning, like 6, 6.30 a.m., we can do it before operating hours? She says, no, no, yeah, no problem, no problem at all. I'm still going to charge you full price today. So we're double paying full price, and he didn't do any work. He was there for like 10 minutes and just witnessed me get yelled at, and that was his day's labor. That was his labor for the afternoon. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I understand them. I don't think it would, it was like th- this whole interaction was technically called for, but I understand why they're mad totally. So we come, so, so the, the lady gives me um, a cell phone number to call in the morning to get access keys to get access to the roof because nobody's here. So she's going to leave keys with this security guy. So we get, we all get there. The crane guy gets there. AC guys get there at like 630 Friday morning. We're all ready to go. I call that cell phone number. I'm like, hey, we're here. We're right outside. There's, there's this mall office, and, and there's an exterior door to go right into the mall office, like in this over by Burlington Coat Factory. And I'm standing outside the door to the mall office. They're right on the other side. And I call this guy, and I'm like, hey, uh, we're ready for the roof access keys. We're all here. He said, I'm not giving you, I'm not giving you those keys until 7 o'clock. I said, well, we're here now, and she told us we could get, get them at 6.30. He said, I'm not giving to you until 7 o'clock. And I was like, we're all here. I'm paying for this crane right now. I'm, are, I said, are you at the mall? Are, are you not, were you not ready for this? He's like, no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm like, I'm right outside the door. You're right inside the door. You have the keys. I don't have the keys. We're all ready. Just step right outside. It's really easy. Just drop them in my hand. I'm not giving it to you until 7 o'clock. And what he was doing was he was trying, he, he heard about the day before and he felt like he needed to punish us for breaking the rules. So he was just, he was just making us wait an extra 30 minutes just to punish us. So then it hits literally, I just stand there at the door for 30 minutes, just boiling. I about, I about lost my faith. I was just like standing and he, and, and honestly, I mean, I was, I don't want to, I don't want to burn the relationship, so I'm just taking it. I'm just taking it. I take every verbal lashing. I just say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I take, take blame for everything or whatever, because I'm not trying to, like, get us in trouble. So they, the guy, op- at seven o'clock on the dot, the guy opens the door, has the key, and he says, they told me to give you this key, but if I'm the one giving it to you, I need to check all your paperwork to see if you've got enough insurance on file. I'm like, oh my God. Lord Jesus, Lord. So he takes me inside, looks at all the paperwork, finally gives me the key with an, another like additional 10 minutes of verbal lashing. For no reason, for no reason, for no reason. We didn't know the rule, we didn't know the rule. You see, when we sign the contract for, for this hub, for this theater, for this space, we knew that it was going to be difficult, there were going to be trials. We knew that having, being in a mall was going to be very, very complicated. Because the rules, the restrictions, it's like much more tight, hands-on. And we knew with what we do, it was going to be very complicated. But we counted that cost. We counted that cost. We looked at it at every angle. We, 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 we looked at every struggle we could. And we signed on that dotted line. We counted the cost. We wrestled. We discerned. And we signed on the line. But I sat there outside that door waiting for that key. And I just, I just thought... I don't want this hub anymore. <laughs> this is not, this is too much. This is too much. This is ridiculous. This is too much. Let's find a different hub. This is ridiculous. And this stuff happens like quite a bit behind the scenes. But it's just like, this is too much. This level of like having to go through this with these people, it's too much. 
You see, we counted the cost, but we cannot count a cost that we do not know or cannot imagine. Had Jesus never actually counted the cost before this moment? That's the question. Had he never actually counted the cost of what he was going into until this moment? Because this is the first moment where he discloses, I don't, there's a part of me that does not want to do this. Is he not taking into consideration his own wisdom that he gave people? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay down the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. Had Jesus never counted the cost until this moment? Well, of course he'd counted the cost because he's already alluded several times to his own death. He knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. He, he, and he traveled uh, for, for ever since chapter 9 in Luke, he traveled all the way to Jerusalem, set his face on Jerusalem knowing what was coming, telling the disciples numerous occasions, this is what's coming. So he knew, he counted the cost, but towers always cost more money than you planned and wars always cost more human life than you estimate. And when the cost of the calling surpasses what you originally calculated, you're in Gethsemane. And I just think there's no way actually Jesus could, have, Jesus could have considered not just his own death, not just his own death, but the experience, the, the, this, this, the cup of the concoction of people's brokenness and sin throughout time and history and having to take on that cup in combination with the wrath of God for that sin. And, be, and facing that, being moments away from that, and even some of the details around his own death, there's no way he could have known, no way he could have understand leading up to it in that way. And when the cost of the calling surpasses that which you originally calculated, you are in Gethsemane. This is too much, Jesus, too much. This is too much. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I committed to you. I didn't agree to this level with you. You see, we count the cost of our calling not just one time, not just before you commit the first time ever to Jesus, but we count the cost of our faithfulness over and over and over again, don't we? Because the reality of that cost, what that cost is, it becomes more clear over and over and over again. And when that cost becomes more clear what it is, we have to count it again. We have to count it again. We have to, we have to decide again if we're going to submit that again, again. Oh, this is what you meant by come and follow me. This is what you meant. There's two critical moments in this passage that expose what I would call new levels of the humanity of Jesus. And I think they're, they're critical to not just breeze over, but they have all kinds of implications for you and for me, for how we live, for how we see what it means to be human. This is arguably the only moment in the life of Jesus where he exposes the existence of a unique human will within him apart from the Father. 
I'll say that again. This is, this is one, arguably one of the only moments in the life of Jesus where he exposes the existence of a unique human will within him which can be divergent, has the capacity to be divergent from God. This is what it mean, part of what it means for Jesus to be fully God, fully man. That theology would be broken if he did not have his own unique will which carries the capacity to be different from the will of God. But we're used to seeing the will of Jesus and the will of God as unity, one and the same, like uh, in unison, in union. We're used to seeing sayings like, I do what I see my Father doing. Uh, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. But we're not used to an honest statement like this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Take it, take it, take it. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. So there's like a whole world of theological implications to run down there, but I'm just going to say, if Jesus has experienced what it's like to confront and submit the weakness of his own will to the strength of the will of the Father, he isn't distant from your experience needing to do the same. That he knows, he's experienced what it's like for the cost to be slightly greater than what he expected. And for his own, the weakness of his own will to not want, to not desire in, in every single moment of every single day to want the will of God. He knows that experience. And, and, and the experience of needing to submit his will to the will of the Father, to be fully obedient to the will of the Father, when that decision is incredibly complex and costly. He is distant from that, and therefore, if he isn't distant from that, you should not be ashamed of it when it happens to you. When you experience those moments of crisis or chaos and you, and you just feel like, Jesus, this is too much. This isn't what I signed up. I'm not sure if I'm strong enough for this. I'm not sure if I can handle this. I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore. When you're in those moments, it is not a cause to be ashamed or to hide those things. But actually, you, actually just like him, just like in his way, to expose it to God, wrestle with it in the midst of God, and to expose it to other people, to bring other people up the mountain with you. Jesus needed, Jesus needed spiritual intervention to strengthen him toward his calling. Jesus needed spiritual intervention to strengthen him toward his calling. You will too. Of course, you will too. He wrestled with God in solitude. He was a recipient of intercession from his friends. He needed strengthened by angels. And the spiritual realm actively ministered to him. Jesus himself was a recipient of ministry in a moment like this. So when you are in Gethsemane, when you're there, when the cost is more than you thought, when you're struggling if you're still committed or not, if these are the new terms, when you're wrestling with crisis and chaos... The involuntary response is to ignore it, hide it, bury it, bury it from God, bury it from other people because you want to come off as strong. But the only way Jesus made it through was by receiving ministry from God and from other people. When your, ministry, when your calling and your ministry and your faithfulness carries you to crisis, where is your Mount of Olives and who are you taking with you? Who are you taking with you? When your closest partner in ministry that you've had for a decade, ever since you even dreamed up the thing that you're doing, when your closest friend for 10 years decides to walk away from the thing that you've been doing for a long time, your partner in ministry walks away, 
either, either in a good way or in a bad way, but you feel betray, betrayed or abandoned, where is your Mount of Olives and who are you taking with you? Who are you taking with you? When people turn on you, the people that you've loved for, for years, the people that you've, you've had in your home, the people that you've cooked an immense amount of chicken and rice for, the people that you've prayed for, interceded for, the people that you've had in your front yard, the people that you've helped move 13 times, the people that you've loved and served for a, maybe even a decade. When those people turn on you, they betray you, or they just decide they don't want to listen to your leadership anymore, Where's your Mount of Olives and who are you taking with you? Where is it? Who's coming? When no one shows up at your outreach that you planned for six months, put a bunch of time into, or when nobody shows up to the Bible study that you planned for one hour before it was supposed to happen in your living room, either one, and you just think, why am I doing this? Nobody's showing up. I'm wasting my time. And the weakness and the embarrassment and the isolation that that causes, where's your Mount of Olives and who are you bringing with you? Where is it? When the people don't, don't do show up, the people that do show up to your outreach or to your living room, when those people are a little bit more broken and messed up and they actually need a little bit more attention than you were bargaining for, they're asking a little bit more of your life than you planned, where's your Mount of Olives and who are you taking with you? When the costs of ministry and faithfulness invade your marriage and those costs start to cause tension and fights and you wind up on the couch for a couple nights, where's your Mount of Olives and who are you taking with you? When the costs of ministry and faithfulness start to invade your family life and your kids start to resent you for the life that you've built and the life they've inherited, where is your Mount of Olives and with whom, who are you taking with you? Who's going with you? Who knows? Who's praying? And when the costs of ministry prevent you in the first place from having a marriage or kids or a family, and you thought those are things you always wanted and you're not so sure this gift of singleness is really a gift, where's your Mount of Olives? And who are you taking with you? See, everyone wants a calling, but no one wants a cup. But the calling of God on you is always going to require an unimaginable cup. A cup you cannot, you cannot conceive of in the initial yes. But will you keep saying yes to him again and again and again? And will you let him strengthen you toward that yes? Will you go to him with it? Will you go to accountable community with it? Will you let people walk with you and strengthen you toward that yes? Because you will not make it to yes on your own. You won't. Will you say, not my will, but yours be done? Will you surrender? Will you surrender in the awareness and the embrace of that cost? You see, before Jesus took a single step in ministry, before he did, he did like the first, the, his first act of ministry, he did two things. If you remember all the way back in Luke 4, which was back in 2012, I don't know if you guys remember when we were studying Luke 4, way, 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 way back. That's a joke. It was like one year ago. So everybody calm down. Um, he did two things. He, he was baptized. You remember this, right? He was baptized, and it was a public proclamation of his identity, but it was also like a, a moment of reception. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. It was a confirmation of his identity, both for the watching world, but also for him. And what did he immediately do from that identity? From that identity, he started stepping into ministry, but before he could do one thing, he just got, he just got wrapped up in a war with the devil, 40 days in the wilderness struggling with the devil, struggling with temptation, 
took 40 days without eating, and what, did the, what was the first thing the devil said? You must be hungry. If you were the son of God, like, the, like just happened to that lake, everybody thinks you are, you think you are, whatever, if you really are, you'd turn that stone into bread and feed yourself. And Jesus refuses to submit to that temptation. And then he says, well, listen, if, if you really were uh, uh, the, the son of God, if you wanted to be a king, if you really are the king of kings, I'll give you all the king. I'll give you every kingdom. I'll give you authority over everything. If only just do the small thing. If only you would just worship me one time, bow down, worship me one time. I'll give you all, the, all everything. I'll establish you as a king. And Jesus doesn't submit to that, to that temptation. The final temptation is, listen, if you're the son of man, if you're the son of God, why don't you just climb up to the pinnacle of that temple, throw yourself off, and the angels will save you. And he refuses to do that either. He refuses to test God. Some people say those, those core temptations are a, a, a temptation to uh, a satisfaction, a temptation to power, and a temptation to certainty. Uh, I, think it's, um, I think it was Henry Nouwen who said that the, the identity of Jesus was given to find his identity and what God said about him at the lake. But he goes into the wilderness and the devil asks him to identify himself not by the word of God, but by to identify himself by what he does, by what he has, or by what other people say about him. Those are the three temptations, to wrestle with those things. But sometimes we don't remember. There's a little line at the end of that story that we just move on and we don't think about. I, here's that line. At the end of that experience, it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Guys, this is the opportune time. This is the fourth temptation of the devil. This is the bookend of the war with the devil that started in the wilderness right at the moment of his first step into ministry all the way till the end. This is the opportune time. This is the devil's last play, his last opportunity to convince Jesus. This is the final play to convince Jesus that there might be a way to be faithful to his calling without a cup. You see, the devil does not corrupt the human will. That junk's already done. Your, your will's corrupt, my will's corrupt. That's already happening. The devil does not do the work of corrupting your will. And a lot of times we have, we're, we're acting out of a corrupted will and we're just like, the devil, I'm under attack by the devil. No, that's you. That's you. That is super you. And there's this thing called, like, we don't have to, like, pray for the, the, the devil to be relieved. Sometimes you have to, like, confess and repent of this thing called sin, right? So, so our will is, like, we, we, ha we, we are being redeemed from, and, and we live in the victory of a renewed will. But sometimes we, get, we, we, we dive back into that thing called the flesh, the corrupted will. The devil doesn't do that. What the devil does is two things. Well, he, do, he does stuff systemically too. He, he, does, he has these schemes that are sometimes called powers and principalities. But when he's working with an individual person, he usually does two things. He can't corrupt your will, but he'll displace your will. That's called possession. Stand in the place of your will. Or he will leverage your will. He will leverage the corruption of your will that already exists. And he does that by dangling things in front of you. Alternative choices alternative futures, alternative dreams to the will of God for you to step into, for you to say yes to. He leverages a corrupted will. We call those schemes. Schemes. 
early in the life of a missionary leader, early in my life, early in your life, early in trying to pursue faithfulness, trying to pursue God, trying to pursue what it means to be a missionary, the devil will try to leverage a corrupted will toward things like money, things like sex, things like power, things like your identity. And there's people who still get taken out by those things at 30, 40, 50, 60, years and years in the faith. But listen, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're because of the strengthening of God and because of accountable community around you supporting you, if you resist those schemes at your corrupted will toward power, money, sex, you know what the devil's last play is? To keep you from finishing well, to pull you out of ministry, to disqualify you from making any transformational impact in the world. He'll, try, he'll dangle in front of you an alternative reality that promises you that you can be faithful to God without a cup. It's his final play, and he makes it on everyone. That there's a way for you to be fully faithful, fully obedient, and not have to experience any pain. Offering you a way to righteousness without cost, a way to faithfulness without pain. And I'm not immune. (laughs) None of us are. And listen, you know how I know when that's happening? It's on the days when I start to daydream about going into a construction job. When I'm having a really hard season and I start to just daydream about like, this sucks, all of it. And I think God might be calling me to put in hardwood floors. As an act of love to people and I, make, I obviously make more money and then I can be generous. I can be generous, totally, I can be generous. And I think he might be calling me to do that, to install floors and to, and to you know, flip a couple houses or you know, do electric or something. I think that, and when it's really bad, when it's really, really bad, I start updating my resume. Those are the really bad times when I know this is going on. Now listen, are those things, those outcomes, are those like bad vocations, bad callings? No, but I'm coming at them from a place of I want to avoid this pain. And I think Jesus might be endorsing this other thing. What that is is an alternative reality being dangled in front of your face. Don't, don't do things that are hard. No, 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 no. God wouldn't have you do that. No, no, no. Here's an alternative reality. You don't have to drink that cup. Here's an alternative vision where God can still use you. You can still be effective in ministry. You know, he, he's probably calling you, calling you to it. I'm just telling you I'm being helpful. Here's this other thing. Here's this other thing. But it's all a sham, it's deception, it's a lie. It's the devil leveraging our corruption of our will with an alternative vision of faithfulness to God without a cross, without suffering, without cost. Will you choose the costly way to life or the comfortable way to death? Will you give up everything and gain your soul or will you give up nothing except your soul? Emily would come up, the worship team get ready. I'll, I just want to close with this final word that the more often you count the cost again and again and again, and the more often you surrender to Jesus in the embrace of that cost again and again, and you emerge from Gethsemane, the more you inherit this elusive thing called spiritual authority. Only when you emerge from Gethsemane. Listen, Jesus comes out of this garden and he does some crazy things. When he steps out of this garden, like the next few chapters are just full of some of the most bold, confident, 
and I would just call it like spiritually authoritative moments in the life of Jesus. You understand that, that section of his life, that authoritative, unbelievably authoritative section is not possible unless he comes out of Gethsemane. Only a word, when you emerge from Gethsemane could you say something like, hurry up, Judas, get it done. Let's do this. Come on. Let's get it done. You want to give me a kiss? Let's do it. Hurry up. Do your thing. Let's get this done. Only when you emerge from Gethsemane could you say something like, don't fight for me, put that sword down. Don't fight for me. This is okay. This is okay. I'm supposed to go through this. You guys got your own stuff you got to get ready for too, but put that sword down. Only when you come out of Gethsemane could you say, hey, dude, you're about to take me to my death, but let me just heal your ear first. You're kind of like jacked up. You look a little jacked up. Let me help you, and then we can go on with this thing where you take me to my bloody death. Only when you come out of Gethsemane could you say a thing like, why do you guys have all these clubs and swords? Why did you think you needed those? Why did you think you needed those? I'm not leading a rebellion, and the only reason you're here taking me Because listen, all those times in the temple, you could have taken me all those times too, but you didn't. You know why? Because it wasn't your time. And I choose when it's your time. And now it's your time. And by the way, your time is when darkness reigns. Let's do this. I'm ready. This kind of leadership and everything that follows is a form of spiritual authority that we've talked about a few times in this community. It's this thing that I like to call gravitas. Mr. Craig Barnes in the, in the book, The Pastor as Minor Prophet. I love this book. He writes about gravitas. He says, the old seminary professor is used to speak about a necessary trait for missional leadership called gravitas. It refers to a soul that has developed enough spiritual mass to be attractive, almost like a gravitational pull. It has nothing to do with charisma or giftedness and everything to do with wounds that have healed well, failures that have been redeemed, sins that have been forgiven, and thorns that have settled into the flesh. These severe experiences with life expand the soul until it appears larger than the body that contains it. Then it is large enough to proclaim a holy joy. The soul becomes large enough, stretched by these moments, to proclaim a holy joy, which is what makes the leader's soul so drawing. Earlier in the week, um, maybe about Monday, uh, you know, some of you know Nancy Hernandez. Um, uh, Nancy leads a microchurch that that works with that works with women uh, 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 who are in a lot of different seasons of life. Women who are in seasons of brokenness. But ever since the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, she's been. Uh, she's been committing a lot of time and she's kind of developed a team uh, to work with Puerto Ricans that have been displaced by the hurricane to Tampa. And they kind of set up in the hub like a little one-stop shop for comprehensive services. For So families that like land in Tampa, most of them, their first place they go is our hub. Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, you know, sometimes our hub is just like like packed and there's kids like running around screaming. And there's job fairs just in the middle of the hub because where else are they going to be? Uh, and it's just like ransacked sometimes. And, there's in the, and on Monday, she came to me and she said, on Thursday afternoon, a U.S. senator is going to come to the hub. Is that okay? Now, listen, that sounds crazy, but she's actually said this several times in the past to me. Like on Monday, Monday morning, she said, Marco Rubio is coming this afternoon. Is that okay? I 
said, yeah, yeah, that's okay. You can have the conference room. <laughs> you know, it's okay. You guys can meet there. But a lot of times when she says it, what she means is the team, like a, the staff team around Marco Rubio is coming, not Marco Rubio. So some people show up and they're like, I'm on staff with Marco Rubio's apartment or something like that. And, they, and, and she's, so she has all these like major political figures. Their teams will come. So I just, she, she says, you know, U.S. Senator Bill Nelson's coming to, to the, uh, to the hub on Thursday and I just said yeah no problem just take the conference room it'll be quiet you know whatever I didn't take it very seriously Thursday at about noon I'm out of the hub and I get a call and they're like there's uh, there's like seven TV cameras in the hub and there's like like 30 people and they're all asking about where you are and what where and what's the underground and and I'm like they're, they're like we think you should be here to kind of try to take control of this situation so I I just leave what I'm doing I run over to the hub and there's just like Fox Bay News 9 like CBS there's just like cameras everywhere and and Nancy comes running over to me and she's like are you ready are you ready are you ready I said ready for what she said ready to pray for Bill Nelson U.S. Senator Bill Nelson I said no I'm not ready to pray for U.S. Senator Bill Nelson so she so like he's actually coming it's actually him he's coming and I'm like, I did not know this was happening. And we're, and we're not supposed to have a ton of media in the hub. And there's just cameras everywhere. And, and it's just like, so, so in the mall, is, the mall management again is freaking out. Our relationship crumbles a little bit further. And um, so I'm like, I'm like Nancy, um, what, do, what do we do here? And, and we try to pack the, the conference room with chairs. And everybody's just waiting for this guy to show up. The cameras are all set up. Everybody's just waiting for him to show up. And eventually he comes in the door, Nancy runs over and, and uh, hugs him, introduces him to me, he talks with me for a second, and then we all go to the conference room. We sit down, and Nancy, this is just Nancy, she's, she's the last one to sit down, nobody can find her, she's off getting more chairs for the, camp, for the people running the cameras. She wants them to be able to sit down. So I go grab Nancy, I'm like, stop doing that, let's go sit down. They bring her to the conference room, I sit her right next to Bill Nelson, and he immediately just dives in to the, to the conversation. Let's talk about the situation here. Like, let's talk about how we can kind of maybe come around what you're doing, help you. And she, she interrupts him in the middle of a statement. She says, stop it. Because she, she, speaks, she speaks a little English, but not a lot. She says, stop it. <laughs> to U.S. Senator Bill Nelson, she says, stop it. And then she looks at me and she says, will you pray for our, our conversation? None of these people around the, t- like, like, there's maybe two Christians at a table of like 15 people. And she's like, will you pray for our conversation? And I'm like, okay. So I come over and I'm like, would everyone bow their heads <laughs> for a word of prayer? And I just start praying like, God, would you fill this room with wisdom? Would you, we know that you're, you're more so on, on the side of the oppressed and those who are suffering than any of us could be. We know that you're, you're, you're building coalition and collaboration, not for the sake of pride and resources, but for the sake of real people. And I just kind of pray for a minute. And then we get done. Everybody looks up. They're like, okay, are we ready to start? And I'm like, ready to go. I'm ready to go outside and like leave them to their meeting. And Nancy turns to, before he can say anything, she turns to Bill Nelson. And she, she starts speaking in Spanish. And the, and the translator's supposed to be translating him. But the translator's talking to Nancy, and they're like talking back and forth, and eventually the translator goes to Bill Nelson. And I didn't know what was happening. Later I found out the translator was trying to convince Nancy, don't say that. That's why they were like dialoguing for a minute. And then finally, and Nancy was like, you gotta tell him, you gotta tell him, you gotta tell him. And this translator turns to him, and and speaking on behalf of Nancy, she's like, what she's saying is, 
because why he's coming is they're, they're talking about trying to fund her work, giving, give her like some grant money or, or come around what she's doing in some way. And the translator turns to Bill Nelson and says, she wants you to know whether you help or don't help, they're going to keep doing the work. It does not matter whether you help or not because God has called them to do this work and they're going to remain faithful to him. The, the choice is really up to you to be with God or against him. And the translator says that, and I'm just kind of like, see you guys later. <laughs> see, see you guys later. <laughs> you got it covered. You're good. Y'all, that's gravitas. That's what you call spiritual authority. You understand Nancy doesn't say that in a meeting with a bunch of people, not caring a lick what any of these people think about her, think about Jeannie, think about their team, think about the work that they're doing. The only way she says that if she, is if she's lived a whole life coming in and out of Gethsemane, refining, refining, refining the cost on her life and realizing on the other side of that cost is nothing but joy, nothing but joy. And realizing over time, it, doesn't, it, it really doesn't matter if people say no to you, if people betray you, if people don't provide you the resources you think you need because somehow God shows up every single time, every time. That's gravitas. It's strength through a lifetime of weakness. It is hope through a lifetime of pain. It is the proclamation of holy joy, a proclamation you can only find at the bottom of the cup of suffering. And no matter how much you go through, we will never taste even a sip, even a sip, even a drop of the cup Christ Jesus drank for us. We cannot even comprehend the pain of one drop of that cup that he swallowed for us, a twisted mixture of the sin and brokenness of this world and God's burning wrath toward it. Both He both willfully took it on with his unfailing and uncorrupted love. And he did so in obedience to the Father and swelling with love for us. Swelling with love for us. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this, this bread is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me, of my sacrifice what I did for you in the same way he took the cup said this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and when you drink it you do so in remembrance of me so this morning I want you to come with your crises I want you to come with your chaos I want you to come with your experience of the garden I want you to come knowing cost cost that maybe you didn't agree to I want you to come with all your wrestling and I want you to rid your shame and your hiding come to this table bring it to Jesus and let him strengthen you strengthen you and come away remembering the cup that he drank for you and now the cup that we willingly drink the cup of the calling and the cup of faithfulness that we have in this world when you're ready, the elements given for you.